Welcome back to the 76th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two talking about Web 3.0 and Web 3 and the difference between the two and how it impact the future of our internet. Then a quick article talking about Google trying to how should we say it, interfere in one of their Supreme Court cases. And our last article will be a very quick one, but it goes over the sentiment in Iran after the months of protests that we saw. And of course, we will end with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So what does the future of the internet look like when you try to picture it? A interactive metaverse, an enhanced search experience guided by AI programs? Or what about the same thing, just with more security or control over your data? It could be all of these options. It could be one that has all three of these integrated But no matter what you picture, change is most definitely coming. And today we're going to explore the ups and the downs and the different visions of Web 3 or Web 3.0. And if you have any specific ideas about what that future looks like, please throw them down in the comment section. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Our first two articles, and yes, it's a little bit different today. I combined two articles into one. Because one provides the vision of one, Web 3, and another provides the vision of Web 3.0. And also one of them kind of goes into depth describing the blockchain and crypto, which is essential if you want to understand Web 3. So the first one that we'll be talking about is CNBC. The inventor of the web thinks everyone will have their own personal AI assistant like ChatGBT. And the second one that's referenced throughout here is from MUO. What's the difference between Web3, blockchain, and cryptocurrency? So what's the greatest flow or flaw, in your opinion, of the current internet? I would argue that it's security. We currently live in a system where you are constantly having to Put in your username, your password, have three layers of verification. First it was one, then it was two with the, oh, text me the code or email me the code. Now it's three where you have a separate device that's already logged into the account, verify that you are logging in on a new one. And next thing you know, they're going to be sending out three different codes to three different places that you have to know all of them for. So there's just layers upon layers of these different security interactions that you have to go through because people have been able to hack them. They've been able to realize, oh, two-step verification. Well, it may be a little bit more tedious, but now that we have stronger computers and stronger algorithms and a better understanding of how they work, we can hack through that now. So then these conglomerates, these giant internet companies say, okay, well, two-factor authentication, you got through that. Well, you know what? We're going to make three now. And that's all well and dandy. I'm happy that they care enough about our security or at least the security of the data that they have to 
address this and add extra layers. But at the end of the day, it's a flawed premise. They're just going to have to add more and more and more because the Internet and how the information flows from place to place is not inherently secure. And that's what I think the problem with the current Internet is. And that's why I say it's security. Quote, more control over your data, no blockchain, and your own personal artificial intelligence agent like ChatGBT. These are all part of the vision of the future of the web, according to the Internet inventor Sir Tim Berners-Lee and COO, CEO of Inrupt, John Bruce, who spoke on CNBC's Beyond the Valley podcast published Friday. And this is the, the web 3.0. Keep that in mind, 3.0. And that's their vision of the future. That's how they want to go about doing it. That's them talking in the CNBC article. But there are alternative visions on how we get to that point. But we'll, we'll jump to those in a second. Let's go to another quote. His solution, a product that allows users to control their data and how it's used. Currently, Internet companies collect data on users by default as a way of using their services. But Barners Lee and Bruce's startup Interrupt is working on a different way forward. The aim is for users to have a single sign-on across different products and services on the Internet. Data will be stored in so-called pods, which are basically a person's personal data online storage container. Individuals can grant a website or service access to their pod or silo of data rather than websites taking data by default. The system is built on an open protocol on the interest internet called solid, end quote. So essentially, this is a extra layer on top of the web 2.0. So first you have just being able to view different websites, being able to visit different websites on the internet, on the web. Then from there, you have interaction. You have text-based interaction. You have these chat rooms, which kind of evolves into Web 2.0, and then video playing, and all these different ways of interacting on the Internet, not just viewing content. So and think about hyperlinks. Hyperlinks allow you to not just go and view one thing, but to an external source, and it kind of created this more interconnected web in Web 2.0. But now... In order to have Web 3.0, they're essentially adding another layer on top of the current system. And that's why they're calling it Web 3.0, because it's essential that they use the framework of the Internet how it is today, but they just build an extra layer on top of it. I believe now I'm reading a book called Life After Google, and the author describes about seven different layers of security protocols, protocols on top of the hardware that are used in order to make the internet viable. Whereas if we were to look at Web 3, not 3.0, Web 3, there are two protocols. One protocol that describes you as the user with your data and to the blockchain that is used to transfer that data from place to place. Now, of course, it's very simple at this point. They probably will have to add more layers of fancy text ways for applications to run on top of that. But right now, it seems a lot simpler. And that's one of the benefits of Web 3.0, among others. And if you can't tell, I am a little bit 
bias, but I am willing to be persuaded. If you are a person who truly, deeply understands this way better than I do, and you're like, Alex, you are totally wrong about Web3 because of this, this, and this, please throw it down in the comments section. I'm not claiming to be an expert. This is just something that really caught my eye, and I think it's a very important debate going forward. And we'll discuss a little bit more as to why after I describe what Web3 is from the NUO article. Quote, in short, Web3 integrates decentralization, blockchain technology, and cryptocurrency. This kind of internet isn't entirely foreign to the one most of us use today, but Web3 has some key differences from Web 2.0. We can still use social media, buy products, check the news, and do everything else we enjoy online. But some core characteristics of Web3 differentiate it from previous iterations, starting with decentralization, end quote. So basically, if we were to draw a very simple line in the sand, the one thing that these two versions, Web 3.0 and Web 3, what they both have in common is they're trying to ensure that you as the user have control over your data. So it is a big focus on security, whether it be pods in Mr. Berner Lee's version, where you keep your information in a silo, and then you have just one password, one username, one authentication key across the entire internet that tells people, okay, this is this person, and they told us that they can take this, we can take this kind of information out of their data silo. Or Web3, which is decentralized, which in theory, you can directly say on each different website which kind of data you want to give away. If you think about the browser Brave, they actually pay you in order to put your eyeballs in front of the advertisers. They pay you a little bit of BAT token, Basic Authentication Token, I believe is the full acronym spelled out. And they pay you to look at ads. And you choose what data is shared with advertisers. And that is the beautiful thing about Web 3.0, the one that is based on the blockchain, which is because every single interaction that it goes on a blockchain ledger is time-stamped, uniquely identified to the computer that did it, the companies can reference that blockchain and say, okay, Billy Bob Joe, his computer logged in, and it doesn't even have to tell you their name. It can just say, computer 456. 456 logged in at this time. They looked at this, and the advertiser is willing to pay this much to put their ad out there. We're going to pass on a little bit of that to computer 456 because they were willing to look at that ad. And there's a timestamp verification that allows you to get paid. Whereas just Web 3.0, where you just have your pod, they're not necessarily saying that they'll pay you. You just choose what data you're willing to show. And that could be no data whatsoever. So then the question becomes, do you want a system where you don't have to show any data at all? And if you do, you don't get paid. Or there's a system where you don't have to show any data at all. But if you do, you can get paid. I think one of those is a more interesting system, and I would love for it to be experimented and expanded further, especially because it is not directly based 
it is not using the same centralized system that Web 3.0 is using right now. It's a decentralized system based on blockchain technology where your data is sent out across thousands of computers. They're called nodes. And if one node goes down, all the data is not lost. It can just shift to a different node. No one node knows what's being sent out to all the other nodes. So in theory, it's a way to take the power away from these large companies that really do constrain the internet and have control over where the data goes and where it flows, who it flows to, such as Google, and now probably Microsoft here soon. You know, people always laughed at Edge but and Bing, but now they're starting to have a comeback. And with ChatGBT, they really become more part of the conversation recently. And with this next generation growing up, they, with TikTok, they're looking at ChatGBT and all the functions that are coming out in Bing, and they may be switching. They may see that Google is not the only option. Just like people in my generation have noticed that DuckDuckGo was an option. Brave has become an option recently where you can get paid to literally just look at ads. So, you know, we're starting to see a lot of the power pulled away from these big companies. But if we have a Web3 design where it's even more decentralized, we can take even more power away from these large companies. And I think that is a good thing at the end of the day. Because as we'll describe here in the next article, they'd use some underhanded tactics to get what they want at the end of the day. So, you know, Web 3.0 does seem easier. It doesn't have to build its own new infrastructure. It's just building upon Web 2.0. And that's one benefit I do see of it. While the author does say it will take a little bit of time, we'll do it, quote, bit by bit. It's not going to be an overnight change. It is something that is building upon a previous iteration, which means that the infrastructure is easier to create, whereas Web3 has to be completely done up from scratch, just like the Ethereum network and their uh, Solidity coding language to create any app on the Ethereum network. This has taken years just to build up to the point where it's viable for different companies to use it. So... If you want something that comes fast, support Web 3.0. If you're willing to wait a little bit of time, but see something that might have a more drastic change on the environment of the Internet, you might want to support Web 3. And, you know, if you don't want to support any of them and you just were curious as to what's going to happen in your future, there you go. I laid it out. Did I lay it out in the best way possible? Probably not, because I am not a computer science major. And if any of them are listening out there and I made huge mistakes, oversights, I'm sorry. I tried to do my research. Please correct me in the comments. Reach out, and I will try to make sure that I don't mess it up again in the future. All right. Remember that point when I told you Google was being a little bit tricky? We're going to jump to our second article. This one comes from Politico. Google tries to astroturf the Supreme Court. So if I'm being honest, you've probably heard about Google more than you would have liked to already today and more than you would have liked to if you've listened to the last few podcasts, the last two weeks of podcasts. But I really do think that this is a very important story. Quote, as Google awaits a U.S. Supreme Court decision that could dramatically upend portions of its business model, 
a group of prominent online content creators and a nonprofit for authors have rushed to its defense. In January, a number of prominent internet influencers and nonprofit authors alliance filed an amicus brief defending the tech giant in Gonzalez versus Google. The case, which is slated for oral arguments on Tuesday, could weaken or even upend the company's treasured liability protection under 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And those same protections, the creators wrote, are vital to them, too. End quote. And they're definitely not, these creators are definitely not wrong. 230 has most definitely been a very vital part to the internet growing the way that it has. It's protected these companies from being sued for the content that goes up on their platforms while also giving them the ability to moderate the content without being considered a publisher. So they can moderate their content to be advertiser-friendly, basically, but they can't be sued by people just because they're moderating their content like a publisher, like the New York Times would. That's the theory behind it. And like I said, this has allowed them to grow because anybody can jump on, put on up almost any content they want, and if it doesn't violate the terms of service, and if, you know... The terms of service, they're kind of arbitrary. The real thing is, if it makes it easy for advertisers to say, yes, we want to spend money on YouTube, your content will be allowed on YouTube for the most part. If it makes it harder for advertisers to be okay with putting their money into Google, your content will probably get taken down from YouTube. The guidelines are supposed to offer a little bit of help to content creators, but at the end of the day, it really does come down to money. So 230 has been essential in ensuring that these companies can make money off of these online social media platforms such as YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, so on and so forth. But the times are definitely changing, and there's an understanding of the power that these companies hold that we have gained over time. It really has become more clear. With this moderation power, they're able to shadow ban They're able to limit who sees different types of content. They're able to outright suspend you for non-explicit reasons and because you can't sue them for it for the most part. There are certain cases where, you know, certain people have been able to sue companies for banning them, such as Twitter. I think they lost a lawsuit two years ago. Uh, YouTube, the suits have been threatened by large creators, but it doesn't mean that they've actually gone through. But at the end of the day, these companies hold a lot of power over what can be seen on their websites. And like I said, it's great to allow them to make money. But at the end of the day, if you're an independent content creator, someone who creates something, maybe that's a little bit edgy, and YouTube doesn't like it because it doesn't appeal to advertisers, but you're really doing what you love, they could make sure that your video doesn't get out to a whole bunch of people. They could make sure that the algorithm doesn't suggest your content. And then even though you're doing what you love, you're following your passion, and there may be people out there that want to follow it with you, YouTube won't let those people see it because they're afraid advertisers will look at it and say, oh, well, no, we don't want, to, we don't want an ad showing up in front of this guy's cringy content. That would not be good brand recognition for us. We can't have that. So with this amazing ability to moderate content and in order to make money from their services, they also have an outsized control over what can be seen. 
And that's a tricky line to walk. And that's why Section 230 has been really, really heatedly debated over the last few years. And the issue here is Google has previously provided... So the specific issue that this article is talking about is that these groups that are coming and supporting Google with this amicus brief and some of the content creators have either previously received money from YouTube, Google, uh, such as the Authors Alliance, or their content creators on YouTube who make their money from YouTube. And I'm not saying that that's a direct conflict of interest because then social media influencers couldn't say anything about any company that's in a lawsuit that they are on because at the end of the day, they could be affected by it. But it does show, when we get into a few more details here, it does show a little bit of trickery on Google's part. Quote, left unmentioned in the brief was that the parties behind it had direct financial ties to Google. The group that funded the brief, a nonprofit advocate for startups called Engine, is funded in part by Google. And at least one of the content creators who signed on to the amicus brief has said that employees from YouTube, a Google subsidiary, invited them to sign on to the brief. In addition, the firm representing the Creators and Authors Alliance, Kev Van Nest and Peters, represents Google in other legislation. Google spokespersons did not respond to multiple requests for comment. Authors Alliance referred comment to one of its lawyers, Ben Berkowitz who maintained that neither the group nor the creators were paid to sign on to the brief. Berkowitz also said that neither Alphabet nor Google or nor its subsidiaries authored the brief or contributed funding. End quote. So Google is basically throwing around tons of money to tons of different companies and different legal agencies. So it's not surprising that there's a little bit of overlap here. And I'm not trying to say that just because this one lawyer, this one group, Van Nest, Peters, and Kekerer, just because they represent two companies doesn't instantly mean there's a conflict of interest. They obviously stated this in open court. They made it obvious to the court that this was a thing. So I'm not trying to say that this is direct collusion and it's it's evil on their part. But you can't deny that there is some conflict here between the interests of these different groups. If Google succeeds, they succeed at the end of the day. If these influencers lose their Google platform, if Google goes under because there are 230 restrictions that make it easy for people to sue them and extract money from them, then these content creators might not have a job anymore. Or at least they might lose their huge audience on YouTube and have to migrate to a different platform. So you see here how they do have an interest in Google and YouTube surviving and coming out the other side of this court case in a beneficial position. But like the author said, the Authors Alliance, they all and the lawyer said, okay, no, just because they have an interest in it doesn't mean that Google paid them directly. So there's no impropriety here. But it's still an underhanded way. It's like, oh, go to your employees and say, hey, someone's someone's trying to sue us, basically. Someone's trying to come after us. I mean, you don't have to, but if you really want to, you could sign this amicus brief defending us at the end of the day. I, like I said, you don't have to, but 
I, I do want you to remember that that paycheck from your ad dollars is coming down the pipeline here in two weeks. And if YouTube doesn't survive because it's constantly being sued, we might not have as much money to give you, Captain Sparkles. And he's one of the people that came out and spoke about this. So, of course, like I said, not direct, not saying that they're underhandedly telling Captain Sparkles that, but he's a smart enough guy that he can read between the lines when they call him into a meeting. And let's be clear, it was hosted by a different organization, but YouTube officials were there. But the spokespeople were all from different, a different organization that were trying to get this amicus brief off the ground. And he's smart enough to read between the lines saying, oh, they, really, they probably really want me to do this. I can't speak for him, and that's just my idea of him. I've seen him online. He doesn't seem like a person that is dim-witted. He doesn't seem like someone who would let something fly over his head like that. He seems like a genuinely smart person who would be able to understand the subtext. But if he didn't, that's my bad. And if he somehow hears this and says, yeah, I'm not dim-witted. I didn't understand what they were trying to say at all, if that's what they were even trying to say. I am sorry, Jordan. My bad. I'm not trying to start beef. I am nothing compared to your 10 million subscribers. I literally have under 100, so I don't even think it will reach you. That would be very, honestly, it's very egotistical of me to pretend that it would even get close to reaching him, and somehow this would ever get in front of his eyes or in his ears. But, you know, that's a little bit of the coverage of the Google story. There is a little bit more, but I really want to jump to this last one coming from NPR. Iran's government has tamped down most protests, but anger and desperation persist. So, you know, the last ones have kind of been free-flowing. This one was a audio version with a transcript that I had to break down, so I'm going to go back to a more traditional I have it kind of scripted out a little bit more because it's easier to go about it this way rather than me ranting for minutes upon minutes and returning to a quote that will kind of be out of context. So the people of Iran have had a rough couple of months. They For five months, they've been protesting their butts off because of the death of Masha Amini. So if you go to, if you were in the country, I believe it was last week, it would be the celebration of Revolution Day, quote, marking the anniversary of the 1979 revolution, and the regime was kicking off with a fireworks display. This is from the author who was in Tehran on the anniversary. But as we leaned out the windows to listen, there was another sound that stood out. Quote, death to the dictator, they chanted, death to Kalamani, freedom, anti-government chants. The same ones shouted at the protests that have shaken Iran in these five months since the death of Masa Amini. She's a young Kurdish-Iranian woman arrested last fall, allegedly for not wearing her headscarf correctly. She died while being held in Iran's so-called morality police. Well, that moment the other night, straining to listen, straining to see what was being chanted, watching for other windows softly opening and closing in the apartment buildings around us, it encapsulated the fault lines in Iran, end quote. So though the major protests have definitely settled down, there is still a sentiment of outrage and sadness in the air that this author, Kelly, describes when going through and interviewing these different people. And it is really sad, in my opinion, to hear that these five minutes of protest 
they haven't actually led to the overthrowing of the government, any actual reforms of the religious regime in Iran. But there are benefits. It has awoken the populace to the outrage that they can feel towards their government, which I don't encourage violence whatsoever. But having a populace that is angry and willing to fight for its rights is a good thing, in my opinion. I just hope it doesn't have to come down to violent means to do so. So this is an interview with an unidentified person to help protect their identity inside Iran. Kelly, quote, I ask about the protests. She says that they have struggled from a lack of leadership. An identified person four, from this point on, I'll just call them uh, person number four. I mean, quote, I mean, still, we don't have a proper leader. We didn't find anyone. I mean, an actual leader who who people love. It's hard, and our government won't go easy, but we will replace them. Kelly, may I ask, did you protest? Were you involved? Person number four, not as much, because, you know, my family didn't let me. It was so dangerous. But at university, somehow, you know, like walking and saying that we wanted our rights back, Kelly. How did you express that in the way that other people can hear it, in a way that the government might hear it? Person number four, you know, there were a lot of students there. We walked around the university and we told some words, just telling them that not settling fire, not setting fire to things, not breaking down anything, just walking and telling our rights, end quote. And obviously, peaceful protests on these campuses is what she's really getting at. And Kelly asked that question next. I just didn't think, you know, it was a good way to close it out. But these sort of nonviolent peaceful protests, ensuring that the government knows that these people know they have rights and they're willing to at least stand up and get behind it. It does speak to the fact that at the end of the day, they might not have as deep of a grip on power as some people in the West think they do. And, you know, that has been shifting. The perception has been shifting over the last few months. But I think there's something important here to highlight. In my opinion, Iran, China and the people of Russia, they all missed a critical moment. There was a critical moment when all three countries were having major protests against their dictators. There was a moment where one spark in one of those countries could have inspired the others to rise up against their governments. And I think that was a crucial moment. And the fact that it is passed now, and that China is back under control, I don't know much about the Russian situation. I haven't seen much news about it. But I did read about Iran, and there's a little bit under control. Don't get me wrong, there were elderly protests in China, but it's not the same as the younger generation being displeased with the government. I think there was a crucial moment to spark the light that would lead to a lot of different revolutions across the world in these authoritarian dictator nations. But I think that time has passed, and I think we'll see if anything does come of this. But I hope that anybody who does go out and protest in any of these countries is doing it in a safe and peaceful manner. And that at the end of the day, if you think it's going to risk your family, you need to take that into consideration. You need to do the math. And if you're willing to die for your cause, I respect that. I don't think it, I can't say it's the right thing to do. I don't know your situation. I don't know if you're being oppressed or anything of that nature. And do not take my words as an endorsement of any radical action. I don't think that's okay. 
but I do understand people yearning for freedom, and I hope that a lot of these people can find it. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. Get away from this sad stuff that, you know, we want to end on something that can make you a little bit happy. This one comes from the animal rescue site. Meet the raccoon who sidelines as the cutest baker's assistant. So not many people picture raccoons as pets. Even fewer can imagine them actually being helpful when making any type of food. Quote, wild animals could be someone's little helper as well. Videos from the internet have been breaking misconceptions about savage animals. They're not always terrifying and can be friendly. Fascinatingly, a Reddit post showed a clip of a raccoon assisting a person while baking, end quote. And, you know, many see this and say, oh, yeah, he's being very helpful, but don't get me wrong, he still is a raccoon, and he did have a, a little bit of mischief brewing. He had one moment. Quote, in the first few seconds of the clip, the adorable assistant is quietly overseeing how things are done. Then suddenly it decided to be naughty. The raccoon tries to sneak a bite like a child, aiding their parent in the kitchen. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of the other articles from today's stories, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Down there also is the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, as well as all the links to wherever you can find the podcast, Podvine, Spotify, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast, and you can download it down there and listen to it on the go. With that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe, don't die.